0: Well, don't it just bless your heart when you see young people using their talents for the Lord? And uh, it should be an example to all of us. So I can't play the piano yet, but you have been called to something. God has empowered you to serve Him. All of us as believers have been called into service for the Lord. And as we have seen in the past few weeks and months that Uh, We may not be able to do everything, but we can do something. And God has called you to serve Him in a great way. Today we go to Mark 13. Mark chapter 13, as we have been going through and looking at the gospel of Mark and the focus of the servant of God. All through this book, Mark... Describes Jesus as the servant of God the, the theme verse of the entire book is found in chapter 10 where I believe for, verse 45, 46 where Jesus said I didn't come to be served but to serve isn't that uh, almost uh, at odds with our uh, mentality for even coming to church that often we come wanting someone to serve us we want someone to do something for us. Well, uh, the church just wasn't feeding me and, and they don't have a class for me and they don't do enough stuff for the children or they don't have the kind of music I want. Listen, as soon as we understand the fullness of who Christ is, we'll get over ourselves and stop being worried about what and how we're being served and we'll start opening up and looking how can I serve others. That's what we need to be looking at. Well, I say all that and over the last several weeks we've seen the, the change from the the Galilean ministry and now Jesus is in Jerusalem and uh, his, his demeanor takes on a different note. He knows He is literally hours away from being betrayed. He is just hours away from entering into Pilate's judgment hall. And I am without a doubt... Uh, firmly believing that Jesus is God. Amen? Uh, That's where, even though you heard, and it's kind of a misnomer, our youth are going through a a small group called the Apostles' Creed, but they're not studying just the Apostles' Creed. But may I say, I agree with Apostles' Creed. Uh, I agree with the, the premise of it. We just don't, we're not creedal people. We don't say we've got to believe that to somehow Reach a cataclysmic point in our life that we ascend uh, the grace of God through some sacrament or rite. But we absolutely, positively, without question, whether it's the Athanasian Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, we know Jesus to be very God of very God. Do you understand that's why they wrote the creeds? To do away with those people who were trying to diminish the role and the person and the deity of who Jesus Christ was? And so we absolutely believe Jesus was God. He understood. He is God. He knew what was about to happen. He knew. He knew that because from eternity He came to go to the cross. Now, I'm going to go a little quicker and it may go a little quick today because listen, I don't want to get weighted down. This is chapter 13 we could have spent as many weeks as we have preached through the gospel mark on just chapter 13. It is what we know from Matthew 24 as the Olivet discourse, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount of Olives. And we've got to understand some very poignant things about the servant's words. The servant's words. And for sake of time, I will not read the whole chapter. But understand, he's standing on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is just adjacent to the uh, the city of Jerusalem. The Kidron Valley lays between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem. If you have ever seen a picture of Jerusalem? It's probably a picture from the Mount of Olives, overlooking a Jewish cemetery and the Kidron Valley, and you see the Eastern Wall, the gate that has been blocked up, and you see the Muslim Dome of the Rock sitting on top of the Temple Mount. Is that that's the picture you see when people show Jerusalem? Jesus is literally. In the position of the person who takes those pictures that we see of Jerusalem. He's standing on the Mount of Olives. It's just over the rise from where Jesus spoke these words, Lazarus, come forth. Bethany is just over this rise. So great things happen. Right below where Jesus is speaking this is the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will be betrayed, where he will pray. And his sweat become as great drops of blood. But he looks over Jerusalem. He weeps over it. But here he expresses this discourse. It's a sermon of Jesus that involved eschatology or the study of things or, uh, to come. This sermon involves five topics that spans from the first century to the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation period. It literally covers thousands upon thousands of years, and it deals with the 69th and 70th week of Daniel. It is a very deep subject, and what we've got to understand, and I want you to grasp this because there's been a lot of talk surrounding some very famous pastors and authors that have made some statements, and some were taken out of context, but we need to understand if we're going to read Scripture We've got to understand first where it was said and who it was said to. We've got to understand the historical setting and the original audience if we're to understand what it means to us today. We cannot be so arrogant as to think Jesus spoke the Olivet Discourse over 2,000 years ago just to the Gentile church of today. It's actually... A sermon to the Jews but I believe we can glean from it amen we are the remnant or, or not the remnant but we are the that which has been grafted in we have been given the opportunity of grace so as to convict and to cause jealousy among the Jewish people to get them to look and come back to Christ you'll see all that in a lot of this today his five point sermon that we see today number one the prophecy of destruction of the temple he's talking about this temple was not even finished when they're looking at it when you see the wailing wall any of you ever seen the pictures of the Jews with the the, the Hasidic Jews the Orthodox Jews with the, the the funky hats and the long sideburns and all of that is Old Testament stuff they have this little box that they strap on they have a special Type apron. All of that is found. You know those those verses that we struggle with in Leviticus and Numbers, and all of that is from that. And they go there and they quote the entire book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations is literally lamenting, a a, a weeping book of the destruction of God's people or His temple. And they they rock like this. That's for that's not some kind of weird thing. That's how they concentrate when they pray. And they pray the book of Lamentations. They pray uh, many chapters of Jeremiah. They pray some from Daniel. And they're praying for the restoration of the temple and Jerusalem and the biggest thing, the coming of their Messiah. Now as we know from the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and the Nicene Creed, and we know from the Apostles' Doctrine, The Messiah has already come. Amen? Amen? Amen. Jesus is the Messiah. And so we see, first of all, the prophecy of the destruction of the temple. There's coming some dark days in Jerusalem at this point. He preaches and speaks words of warning of the coming persecution. They had no idea what they were about to face. For the next several thousand years, The things that had happened to them in Egypt, the things that had happened under Darius and Cyrus and Artaxerxes and the others of this world could not compare to the persecution that they would face. Warning of danger in the last days is the third word that he spoke in this sermon. Fourth, prophecy of the second coming and finally, warning of necessity to be watchful. To be watchful of what's going on. We find that throughout chapter 13. I told you this would be heavy. This is not just your average sermon. For it was not just the average words. Jesus was literally bowling down the future of Israel in one message. In one place. At one time. Now remember, Jesus has the authority to do that. He took the whole Ten Commandments and gave us two. Right? He said, what's the great commandment? We put it on our sign every Sunday. To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind, and body. You know, and then what's the second one? To love others as you love yourself. Those are the two fullness of the Ten Commandments. The first tablet and the second tablet. It is how we deal with our God and how we deal with others. Jesus boils it all down and gives us the entirety of the picture of the rest of time just about in chapter 13. So the audience is Jews. There's no mention of the rapture in this context. He speaks of the time of Jacob's trouble. What was Jacob's other name? He wrestled with an angel and he said, and he didn't wrestle. Northern people say they wrestled. Jacob wrestled. He wrestled with an angel all night long, and in the morning, uh, the the angel said, Turn me loose! Jacob said, Not until you bless me. Now, he didn't understand that part of the blessing, we don't, listen, sometimes we don't understand. They'll think. Number one, the blessing was what? He said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but it will be Israel, right? And you shall be the father of this great nation, your sons shall be the tribes. But in that blessing, what else came with just the name change? He walked like this the rest of his life because of how God touched his body. Sometimes the blessings of our life looks like a curse. Sometimes God will touch us, whether it's in our body or in our mind, to slow us down to get our attention on what really matters. But when he what he talks about here and all that is just side note. Jacob's trouble literally is the second half of the tribulation. The, the, the worst of the worst that comes upon the nation of Israel. It's a day of God's vengeance as we see throughout Isaiah in chapter 34 and 63. It's a great day of his wrath. We see the great and acceptable day and year of the Lord we see spoken of so many times in the minor prophets and we find it in Revelation 6 the tribulation these seven years and we see it through the Old Testament minor prophets we see it uh, expressed in Revelation this seven year time split in three and a half and three and a half tribulation and great tribulation and then the hour of his judgment But today I want us to look briefly at the high points of Mark chapter 13. At the servant's words. First of all, look in verse 1 and 2. And As he went out of the temple. Now remember, what's the last thing he did when he was in the temple? He looked over and he saw the widow woman. He saw the humility. He saw the arrogance of the religious crowd. he saw the faithfulness of that widow who put her two mites in. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said unto him, Master, Master, Lord, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Oh, the the magnificence of this building. Jesus answered and said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when shall these things be? First of all, I want you to notice what Jesus is expressing in verse 1 and 2. Number one, life and death beyond just buildings. You know, we talked about last week the rich fool who said, oh, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns. Oh, it's about this. It's about the pomp and circumstance. And we, we quote a movie like it's scripture. Oh, if we build it, they will come. Jesus said, life and death are not in buildings. For they will be built and they'll be torn down. Do you see these great stones? And they're all, this is his disciples. It wasn't the Pharisees. It wasn't the scribes. It wasn't the Sanhedrin. It was his disciples said, Oh, Jesus, look what they're doing in building this great temple. He said, there will not be one stone left upon another. You see, it's a big world, church. And sometimes we look, and from our vantage point, do you remember when you were young and everybody looked like giants? Do you remember that? If you went to a school where all 12 grades were together, uh, you were in third grade or second grade, one of those elementary grades, and you'd go into a lunchroom or you'd walk down the hall and you'd pass a, 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 a high schooler, you'd pass a junior or senior, and you'd be like, oh, wow. They're like, they're like grown. They're old people. They're, man, you know, it, it was amazing. Now you look, you go out to a, a high school baseball game, and they've got like a, a, a 64-year-old man's beard. And they're like 17. They've got these big old beards and stuff. And it's like, wow, you know, they look grown. You look up, and your dad would be like, man, he's old. He's like 33 years old. It's all in our perspective, isn't it? But what Jesus said, all you can see is these little stones. I created it all. It's a big world. Look around. I mean, it was, I'm going to just be honest. It was awe-inspiring to see that that lake area in Guatemala. It was unbelievable. The, the night we walk out... Uh, we had just left Antigua which sits at the foot of that volcano and we had drove for two, two and a half hours back to Guatemala City and we went in, we got ready, was going out to get something to eat that last night we were there and I walked out of the room and told Andrew, I said that don't look like a regular cloud and a pastor friend of mine walked out and I said, is the volcano really- oh no, no, that's uh, maybe a bomb, I said, there ain't no bombs I mean we're not in Iraq I said, it's right there over Fuego. That thing is blowing up. Oh, no, don't say that. Don't say that. We won't ever get out of here tomorrow. I said, tell me it's not when it's a black cloud that reflects red all through it. So we looked it up, and it said, current status erupting. He said, oh, man. Oh, no, we're never going to get out of here. Oh, we're not. It was awe-inspiring to see. I, you know, I don't know that I've ever seen... A volcano. I don't remember seeing one. Maybe I did in younger days. It was all inspiring to fly over the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, it's all inspiring to fly over the Mediterranean. It, it, it's awe-inspiring to see the, the different places that God has created and what He has done throughout Central America and Europe and, uh, and uh, the Middle East and all these places. But my friends, when all we can see is right here in front of us, it looks big. All they could see was what was right here. It's a big world. We need to look around. We need to get outside our comfort zone. Jesus is fixing to rock their world. Think about it. In just a matter of a few short years, we'll see Peter... And Andrew and all these guys that's asking this question, we'll see them all through Asia Minor, taking boat trips and seeing places they couldn't even pronounce before. All they had done is gone over the Sea of of Galilee to catch fish. Now they're going across real oceans to catch men. We have got to see, it's a big world, to look around. And that he is in control, look up. He said, not one of these stones will remain. He said, these great buildings, really? They shall not be standing here, but will be thrown down. Now, some of this is not just his verbiage and giving us a picture of, of who he is and being broken down and, and, and the temple of, of the body of Israel But he's speaking of the literal temple that we see destroyed over and over and over again. Even this temple that was not finished for many years would be completely and utterly destroyed in the coming years. We've got to see, my friends, that God is much bigger than the temporal things of this world. Houses burn. Hurricanes and tornadoes will wipe things off their And what do we always hear? One minute it was here, the next minute it was gone. What are we living our life for? The temporal things. Oh, look how magnificent this is. God, look how great a work we've done for you. God said, oh, it'll all fall. It will not last if it's not centered on Him. Now we notice the words of wisdom. He said in verse 3, They sat over there and they asked him, What do these things mean? And what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? At least they understood understood Jesus had deeper meanings oftentimes. He said in verse 5, And Jesus answered them began to say, Take heed lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name. Now hear this. This is a very, very poignant point of this sermon. That he was speaking to the Jews, but I believe he speaks to his church today. Take heed, lest any man deceive you. Three times he said, take heed, take heed. He said, beware. That's what he's saying. Beware. You remember when your parents would tell you, look, be careful about this. Be careful about that. And they would because it was so dangerous, they would warn you over and over and over again. Now you've got to make sure not to do this. Jesus said, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive Many, And when you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled. For such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. I've heard people quote this so out of context. Man, Jesus come back. You know what the Bible says? Wars and rumors of wars. He said, not yet. He didn't say now. He said, not yet. We, we take little pieces because we don't study the Word of God. Listen, what he's trying to tell us is beware of deception. Beware of deception. First of all, false messiahs. It started in the early days of the church. There was a guy named Moses that he, he claimed to be, now not the Old Testament, New, New Testament during the church age that claimed to be the real Messiah. And over and over, we're not talking about Antichrist. We're talking about false messiahs. They come, now they're anti, yes, but they do it under the guise of being for. Hey, look, I'm with God. God has sent me. We've had them in our days. We've had many who have said, "Look, I am the Messiah." Charles Manson thought he was. David Koresh, Louis Farrakhan, many over and over, from different races, different backgrounds, who says, "Listen, all that stuff is a lie. I am the Messiah." Becky and I have sitting. we've watched these, these shows that show people who got caught in cults and how they were trying to get out and helping others. You ever seen any of that stuff? The thing that always blows our mind, she says every single time we watch this stuff, how do people fall for this stuff? Because we want to believe a lie. They come to them and they tell them great things. Listen, Jehovah's Witnesses, they come and they pray on people who are of a low, lower socioeconomic level. That's the truth. They pray on single or divorced women. If you ever see there'll be an older Jehovah's Witness guy, if they come to your house and they'll have a young woman uh, with them that's been divorced whatever, has a child. They pray... On them, They prey on other people who have a lack of education. Many of these cults, and I'm going to tell you something, parents. We want our kids to be the best and go be known everywhere. But I'm going to tell you, the heart and soul of cult recruitment happens on public college campuses. That's where it happens. And look at what we're facing today, where we've got to have safe zones and Christians can't say anything. We're safe from Christianity, but safe to anything else. They can promote the Satan... I had one of my deacons call me this week. He was so mad at something that popped up on something on his phone that had nothing to do with him, but because of some algorithm that they may have caught some word that related to religion, they are ambushing the people of God today, and it was something in support of the Satanic church. And this deacon, I was so proud of him. He said, I just need to talk to you. I am so mad I wanted to throw the phone through the wall. I said, probably the most spiritual thing we can do sometimes. But the truth is, listen, false messiahs. They've been happening for 2,000 years. And they will continue. And Jesus warned the Jews. And yet they still today are going to accept the biggest false one of them all the Antichrist a false Messiah he warns us against wars and rumors of wars do not be deceived every time you see something happen oh it's the listen but he said it's not yet but it is preparing the way words of wisdom church we need to know what God's word said have you ever had a Christian say I don't read the book of Revelation it's just too deep it worries me and I, I just... That's too heavy for me. So you want 65 books, not 66. Do you know that Revelation is the only book that in the first opening context promises a blessing to everyone who reads it and obeys it? Do you know that? It does. What do you think Revelation's about? And, and number one... This is a pet peeve of mine. It's not revelations any more than it's K marks. <laughs> or should I say, wall marks or belks. It is the revelation. And, and can I go one step further, please? Don't get mad at me. It's not the revelation of John. John is the revelation, revelate. Jesus is the revelator. Jesus reveals himself. Listen, John fell down and said, Oh, I'm a dead man. He said, No, get up. Get up. I've got to tell you something. I want to make something (coughs) vividly clear that will open the book of Revelation to you. Revelation is not about the Antichrist, even though it mentions him. Revelation is not about the, the number of the man or the number of the beast or the beast or the dragon or tribulation or millennial reign that even though it's mentioned that's not what the book of revelation is about. You know what it's about? What does it say? The revelation of who? Jesus Christ. I believe it's in verse 8 of the first chapter. He said Jesus speaks and he said, "I am Alpha and Omega." You know what he says at the end of the book? "I am Alpha and Omega. I'm the beginning and the end, the first and the last." And John said, even so, Lord, come quickly. We need to be aware of what this book is telling us. Gee, if you get nothing else from this message. Listen, I have been so perplexed on preaching this this week. The truth and what you need to get out of this this week is Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is coming back as He came the first time. And it's nothing else, not plus something else. It's just about Him. And when the wars happen and the rumors happen and all the other things that happen in this world, don't panic. He's still on His throne. And so we see prophetic words. Of coming tribulation. He said in verse 8, For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be earthquakes in diverse places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. But once again, he said, take heed to yourself. First of all, these words of coming tribulation shows the beginning of tribulation or sorrows. What are the sorrows? False messiahs, wars, rumors. Natural disasters. He said there'll be earthquakes. He said there'll be famines and trouble. Look, do we see natural disasters in our lifetime? Do y'all remember the day after Christmas tsunami? Wasn't that 04? Over 100,000 people died in one fell swoop. How about... The earthquake in Haiti and it had been advertised but when Ben and I were there they said the world played down the number it was not 180,000 it was 350,000 that died on this country and he, he can testify I said where are the graves they said look around they're right in front of you I said well, what, we only saw a few formal graves he said oh no when three hundred fifty thousand people die, you just bulldoze them under. He said, "This one guy, he was Caesar. He was brilliant, brilliant guy. He said they would bring in heavy equipment and they would just push out fields, just push them out, and they would just push the bodies in. There was nothing else, no way to identify. You're thinking it's the poorest country on the earth." Because what happens if you don't? Famines and trouble. Pestilence. You start seeing the plague. You start seeing all the diseases of the world. Jesus is warning them that's what's coming in the days of sorrow. Those of you who went with me on Wednesday night through this study, we remember some of that stuff, don't we? Remember when the water, everything in the water dies? You remember that? Everything You understand in one and a half years of the first half of tribulation, half of the world will die. The first time, it says <clears throat> one quarter of the world's population will die in one fell swoop. And then within a year, one third of the population. If you take all that, and I'm not bright on numbers, it took me about three weeks to figure this out, it, was, it, it counts for half of the entire world's population. How many is living today? Seven billion? Take that. Three and a half billion people. That's all of America and all of Europe. That's like China or India. But it's it's half of the world. Gone in a matter of a year. That's what's coming in tribulation. You think we've got it rough? This is great. There's going to be persecution, he tells them. He said, but take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils. And in the synagogues you shall be beaten. You shall be brought before the rulers and the kings for my sake. I'm going to tell you something, church. Hear what I've got to say. And I may have an axe to grind, but I'm going to stand on the word of God and not apologize for it when we've got denominations and we've got Christian evangelical so-called groups that's having to debate whether God's Word is God's Word on homosexuality, on gender, on sin, then we know we're in bad shape. You do not They can debate all they want and try to decide whether it's doctrine or not. It doesn't change the fact of what truth is. And let me say something one step further to help all of us. You do not have to okay someone's sin to love them. If you really love them, then you will not okay their sin, but show them there's a Savior who can forgive them. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. We need to pray for our Methodist brethren. We need to pray for our Presbyterian brethren. We need to pray for our Southern Baptist brethren who at this very time in history is fighting amongst themselves. I'm going to tell you something, church. Sexual abuse should never be hidden. It should never be covered up. But we should not group up all 45,000 churches and try to convict all 45,000 pastors of who most of them are doing it Right? The world's going to hate us. Our family's going to betray us. That's what we're talking about. We're brothers and sisters. We're the only group in the world that circles up to have a firing squad. Hey, let's all make a circle. We're going to have a firing squad. Now, how bright is that? We're the only army in the world that kills their own wounded. We have betrayed... He said, families... Fathers will hate children, and children will hate mothers, and brothers will hate one another. That's sad, isn't it? Do you know what was so wonderful about Night to Shine? There was a lot of lost people that served that night. Do you know that? Lost people. A lot of college students that came here, and I'm not trying to judge, but just based on biblical statistics... But we got to give them the gospel. And stand when we were telling them about what they need to do and how we got to say, "Hey, listen, the biggest thing is not just that you're doing this even though it's wonderful, but that Jesus did it for you. And that you can have a life that shines through Jesus Christ. We've got to come to the point that we understand the world's going to turn on us when we stand for truth. We're going to be hated by the world. I just can't believe the way they treat some people. Why? Jesus said they would. Jesus said the world would not like Christians. Now I want you to think about this. We see it in immediate fulfillment. Through Vespasian and and Titus, 40 40 years later, he came in, uh, trees were seen as wealth. Because of olives and almonds and things. Titus just cut them all down. He burnt down the temple. He tore down everything. Rome come in and just completely wiped out the country. They now were so... Listen, you remember why they got mad at Jesus while, where it said that many no longer followed him? It was because when he said, I didn't come to establish my throne now. I came to show y'all that I am the Son of God to die for the sins of the world. And they were all upset. They wanted him to ride in on a white horse. He rode in on a donkey. They wanted him born with a pedigree. And they wanted him established in his kingdom. He was born in a barn. And exiled into Egypt for two years. As Herod sought to kill his life. They hated him. He said a prophet's accepted everywhere but in his own country. They said isn't this Jesus of Nazareth and isn't Jude James' brother and she's his sister and isn't he the son of Joseph and Mary? What did that have to do with anything? He was Jesus. Now if they knew the Scripture they'd knew that he was from Bethlehem and he just lived in Nazareth and the Bible prophesied that. It was an immediate fulfillment Jesus was speaking of. But then an ultimate post-rapture fulfillment. Again, while there is no mention of the rapture in this discourse, we can be assured that there will be a replay of the turmoil of the first century. I mean, Christians were were literally put up on post- I, I'm of the belief that Christians won't live during we will be raptured out before the tribulation. But I believe there'll be people saved during the tribulation. I don't get into that. If you disagree with me on that, that's fine. It has no bearing on our, our, our stance on who Jesus is. But what we see in the first century is wholesale massacre of Jews and Christians for the sake of cleansing. We have seen it in our lifetime, have we not? And I'm not just talking about the Holocaust. I'm talking about in places like Kosovo, Sarajevo. You know, a place that had the Olympics one time became a battleground over ethnic cleansing. We saw, and if you have any questions, we should have never been in Iraq. We should have never done that stuff. Then I want you to just Google this. Gassing of the Kurds. That's all I want you to look up. When Saddam Hussein gassed his own people and killed them by the thousands. My friends, this stuff has happened under a guy named Idi Amin, the last king of Scotland in the Congo, what we know as Uganda now. It's happened all over the globe. And it's still happening today. It's ultimate fulfillment. And in the middle of the tribulation, oh man, they just thought it was all right. They were going to escape, but then it gets really bad. The two witnesses come on the scene. They kill them. They have Christmas over it. And the abomination of desolation and the Antichrist reveals himself there in the temple, the new temple, when they say, oh, look how great it is. Jacob's trouble breaks forth as a holocaust that could have never been realized. Worse than anything that Antiochus Epiphanes ever thought about doing when he forced the Hellenization. And even worse than Hitler and Stalin. But thank God we see in verses 24 through 27 the end of tribulation. In those days after that tribulation the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars of heaven shall fall and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. And then, and then, not before then, And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Come on, church. Amen. Amen? This is the second coming. Not the rapture. This is the second coming. And they shall see Him coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And they shall... And then shall He send His angels and shall gather together His elect from the four winds, from the uttermost parts of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven, Church, we see the end of it. But I want to drop back to one verse. I want you to look in chapter 13, verse 10, right in the midst of His warning of deception, His warning of, of false messiahs, His warning of coming tribulation. He tells us in verse 10, And the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Brother Philip asked us last Sunday night, in three words, what's the gospel mean to us? Some, God's free gift. You know, I like the acrostic of grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Either way you look at it, the word gospel literally means the good news. The good news. It, it, it's the same word that we, call, we use for one who shares good news, an evangelist. The need for the gospel presentation, he tells us in this verse, and the gospel must first be published among all nations. Right smack dab in the middle of an Olivet Discourse unto the Jews, Jesus says, but the Gentiles are going to hear about me. You see, he said it's needed now. We must tell the world now. Oh, but I, I just don't have time and I'm, I've got to get ready for this work and I've got to get ready, we we'll get the kids ready for this and I don't have time to come tonight. I don't have time for Sunday school. I don't have time to tell my friends. My friends, there's going to be a day where you'll no longer be able to tell somebody or they may not be able to hear it. You may not be here or they may not be here. It's needed now. It's needed everywhere. He said, look, look what he said. Not not my words, but Jesus' words. He said the gospel, the gospel very clearly, must first be published among what? All nations. What does Acts 1-8 say? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where? Where? The uttermost parts of the world. I'd I'd call that the all nations, wouldn't you? He tells us in the great commission, not the great consideration, that we are to go. We have been commissioned to teach and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ unto all nations. For us here at Eastside right now, it's our home, it's our family, it's our community, and God has laid on your pastor's heart in Guatemala. In the Solala region, in those schools, and in the Truth Baptist Church. It's needed now and it's needed everywhere. And I want you to understand there is nothing as important in your life as sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know, it has been it's been said that Saint Augustine said it, it's been said that others said it that. Uh, preach the gospel and if you must use words, you must. Now I get what he's saying and we need to live it. We need to exemplify the love of Jesus Christ in everything we do. But I'm going to tell you something. Jesus called us to use words. And he called us to use the word. The Bible. To tell the world. I had the privilege of reading at the elementary school this week. And so when I had the privilege, Jenny reminded me and she texted me and She said, don't forget, preacher, you're old and you need to be reminded. And and I told her to because I'm old and I would forget. So I went up in the attic at our house and I picked out, and I've got books, my books, from when I was in elementary school, my favorite books. And I picked out about four or five of my favorite ones and even picked out a few of my old Dr. Seuss books that, you know, if they wanted that to read, but... I had to pick me one old one about a steam shovel and about the little tiny house that they built the city around. I loved those books when I was little. And I brought them all. They were my favorite there. But then I brought my favorite book of all time. I said, bless God, I've been invited. I'm going to read. I'm going to read in elementary school. I'm going to read the greatest. And you know what? I asked them, get this now. I said, do y'all know what the most famous book of all time that sold more copies over the longest period of time and been on the number one bestseller of all time? And you know, most of them knew. They said, the Bible. Amen. And I said, do you know what the Bible, and I was being real educated with them. I said, and I got blown away by the spirituality of one little boy. I said, do you know what the word Bible means? It means book. Biblios means book, the book. He said, yeah, the sword. I said hallelujah brother that's exactly right kind of but I just opened and I read what a little shepherd boy told us the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want I was able to read the word of God to two fourth grade classes stop buying this lie that we can't do all that stuff you know we like to say that because we're afraid to the truth is, if we would just bow up and be everything God wants us to be, listen—you would be—you'd be blown away by the opportunities you have to share the gospel. I'm not bragging on me, I'm bragging on the Word of God. We just—you see what the Christian Learning Centers do it? You see the lives that's being changed in a public school? We're teaching classes; they get credit for. It. It's based on this word. Jesus said dark days are coming, preach the gospel. That's the only way I know to sum up the Olivet Discourse. Dark days are coming, preach the gospel. Preach it to everybody, preach it in all time, preach it everywhere. Because the days are coming. The world's not going to like you even more than it don't like you now. But I'll never leave you. And I'll never forsake you. Listen, as they come to the instruments, it's, and this is a hard, it's a hard context to try to get through in a, in a sermon in a short period of time. And I didn't even begin to come close to t- doing justice to it. But what I want you to see is I don't want you to see me. I don't want you to see the pitiful effort of this sermon. I want you to hear the words of the sermon giver, Jesus. he said, it's not about the temples and the buildings of this world. It's not about the wars and the rumors. It's not about the false messiahs and the religious elite. It's about me, he said. It's about the one who's going to the cross and dying for your sins. If you don't know Jesus today, all this makes absolutely, positively no sense to you. Tribulation, all that kooky, sauce, kooky all that crazy stuff. I'm going to tell you something. The end of the world's coming. How about we just put it this way? The world's going to come to a screeching halt one day. And no matter how you look at it, whether it's this way, that way, or the other, you know that things are happening. You know that there are all kinds of fightings. And all, and you know that the world's saying, come do it my way. I'm not telling you, come do it my way. I'm telling you, come to Jesus. He's your only hope. Jesus really lived on this earth, was really God before He came to this earth and He's really still God after the resurrection, during His death on the cross, He never stopped being who He is. But He did it for you and me that we could have hope in the dark days. Will you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior before it's everlastingly too late? Will you know you're on the winning side? Will you come and be faithful and say, I'm going to share the gospel. I'm saved. I've never been baptized. So I've never even told the world outwardly what you've done for me, Lord, inwardly. You need to come be baptized. You need to join with this congregation to serve Him. Whatever God wants you to do. You're saved, baptized, teaching the class, leader in your home, but things are not just right. You need to come and just pray. Maybe everything's right. You just need to come thank Him. Just come and thank Him for who He is. God, thank You not for just what You do, but for who You are. You're God and I'm not. How about that for a time of praise? Stand and come. Come to Jesus today. I'll pray with you. Come.